Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Profitability Podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Pinar. Sometimes as I experience this world of ours, those things that are different are often labeled weird just because they're different to me or different to a specific group of people. I always wonder though how a little bit of curiosity and empathy might actually highlight the similarities more than the differences. So every week on this podcast, I have a conversation with a fascinating guest, whether they're an entrepreneur, an artist, musician, author, poet, or artisan, to learn more about how they live a life that is uniquely profitable. Today's conversation is with Tony Weaver Jr., CEO of Weird Enough Productions, as well as a recent Forbes 30 under 30 nominee and a TED speaker. At Weird Enough Productions, Tony and his team create comics that feature heroes that are more representative and ultimately help empower every single person to recognize their own power. I wanted to talk to and learn from Tony after finding his TED Talk and being inspired by how he has weaved his own story into how he now tells stories that help empower others. I also loved his social entrepreneurship angle with Weird Enough Productions, as well as the interplay between what most of us would define as either business or art. We also spoke about having honest conversations with ourselves, why it is crucially important for each of us to figure out why we work on the things that we work on, and how we are possibly idolizing the wrong people. Tony also shared a really unique perspective on influencers that might just change your opinion of this. He surely challenged mine. This was an incredibly thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation with an incredible individual. We went slightly longer than previous conversations, but this is well worth the listen. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tony Weaver Jr. Hey Tony, thanks so much uh, for being here. Really excited to be here. Yeah, so I don't normally do this, Tony. Like I don't ask guests to generally introduce themselves, but I want to make an exception for you here because I really would love to hear in your own words just kind of how you kind of introduce yourself today as as Tony writes, but also how you introduce the work you do with Weird Enough Productions. Definitely. There, there's a lot to say. So my name's Tony Weaver Jr. and I run an organization called Weird Enough Productions. And the way that I describe Weird Enough is that we're a social impact organization focused on using the power of stories to change the world. And we do that in a variety of ways. So Weird Enough, we create diverse comics. We have a diverse comic that I get the privilege to write and work with a series of artists on called The Uncommons that tells the story of a group of unlikely outsiders that have to save each other to save the world. Uh, And we publish The Uncommons online three times a week. We just broke about 350,000 readers. However, something that's cool about The Uncommons is that we also take our work and we partner it with educational curricula projects and activities that teachers can use in the classroom to teach young people about things like confidence, self-esteem, self-control, and really help them see themselves as heroes and become heroes in their communities. So at Weird Enough, the idea is what if we created this haven for the next generation of storytellers where these unique stories were not only being told, but we were able to leverage those stories in a way that creates clear and measurable social impact? That's a mouthful, firstly. And I think, um, you know, obviously, I did my research and I think the work you're doing is absolutely amazing. The first question I have, which might sound a little glib kind of, you know, off the back of that, but I was curious about why call it weird enough productions and not just weird productions. So I think that the weird enough is really important in part because 
I think that when you think about the word weird, everybody likes weirdness, but they they qualify it, right? So you can be weird under certain circumstances. You can be weird in certain ways, but there's always a line somewhere in which a person goes, okay, now you're doing a little too much. I don't, I don't like what you're doing. You're making me a little uncomfortable. And I think that so often people allow that line to be drawn by others. So for example, I'm really into anime. I'm really into video games, really into comic books. And when I was growing up, I was into it really heavy. I don't think that's changed. When I was growing up, I was very unabashed about it, right? Like you, you find a kid that's into something and you ask them about it, they can talk your ear off for hours about it. And I think that as a result, I ended up being known as the weird kid because I had all of these hobbies and I would let other people define for me how weird I was allowed to be. I would use reactions from other people and feedback that I got from other people to self-assess how I personally should behave and how I should treat myself and how I should express my joy. But it, weird enough, what we say is that as long as you pursue your personal truth, you're never too weird. You're just weird enough. It's this idea that it's not about what other people tell you about yourself. It's about the line that you set for yourself. Whatever you determine and assess for yourself as the thing that makes you happy and the way that you want to be, that's always going to be enough. And that's always where you should land. I love that. And I'm wondering, is that just a change of mindsets and attitude or are there specific actions? Like for anyone that feels today that they're just being weird and they need to set that line for themselves and they want to be weird enough, like what is the practice or the habit or discipline or change there that they need to make? I think that it comes from an honest conversation with yourself. I think that the way that we embrace who we are and bring it to the world in the way that's most genuine starts with having a conversation with yourself. Because I think that in an age of social media, where as much as we don't want to, we're constantly looking at views, reach, engagement, conversions, especially as someone that runs a business, right? Um, when you think about social media, a lot of people say, well, just don't think about it. Social media can be really unhealthy. Don't think about it. And I'm sitting over here like, you do understand that I run an organization where our conversion rate and my ability to make these algorithms work for me is in part what allows me to compensate my team. So I don't, I don't have the privilege to go, you know what? Not going to think about the analytics at all. Not going to do it. In a world where these metrics do have meaning and real ramifications, it is really easy for people to completely align themselves with these metrics and base their value on these metrics. But I think that you have to have a conversation with yourself where you say, what am I doing and why? What am I doing and why am I doing it? And I think that that why is different for everybody. But as long as you can look in the mirror and know that that why is coming from the right place, that's how you find what's weird enough for you. Right. Because I think that there's a certain point in time where, where as an organization or as a leader, I've lost my why before I've lost sight of why are you doing this exactly? And that's when you get in a really dangerous headspace where you start making decisions based on clout or based on what people are going to like or what's going to get engagement and not why you are actually doing the work that you do. 
So I talk about it from a business sense, obviously. So I, I don't lose track of our mission. I don't lose track of our why as an organization. But I think it applies to individuals as well. What breeds life into you? What makes you happy when you wake up? What makes you smile when you look in the mirror in the morning? Don't lose track of those things. And that line will gradually present itself for you. Yeah, that, you know, Tony, that, that really, really, really resonates. And I only found this later in my life. And it was actually a book by Dina, I think she's Dr. Dina Gluberman. And uh, the book's name is The Joy of Burnout. And there was a specific quote or definition that she uses for burnout, which, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but it's something like, you know, burnout happens when we lose the meaning and the structures we created. And that's very much that kind of why. And a big part of the reason why this podcast, for example, exists is in support of my book that I'm releasing later this year. And part of the concept of life profitability was this notion, and I agree with you that as anyone doing anything in this world, for me as an entrepreneur building a business, I think we lose that why, as you've said. And I think that the thing, and one of the things we propose in the book is that every entrepreneur, every business owner, every maker, every creator, they, they have to go back to that starting point and figure out what that why was. Because if you're not in alignment with yourself at that very first point, it doesn't really matter what you do going forward because you're the only one that's going to be the common denominator on this path going forward. So if you're misaligned on, on, on the first step, you're definitely going to be misaligned on the you know, 10th and the 77th you know, step as well. I agree 100%. And I think that it's something that's universal to majority of the paths that we take in life, whether that's you as an individual coming to your own, whether that's you as a business owner trying to create something, whether that's you as a writer, as an illustrator, as a storyteller, trying to steward something into the world, there needs to be a place of genuine alignment where you feel aligned with your work and you feel in touch with the community that you're creating that work for. And if that alignment isn't there, what should come naturally becomes work. It becomes grading. It becomes such a heavy lift to do something as simple as answer an email or to sketch out a scene or to write a dialogue sequence. And I think that when things hit that point, a lot of people may think that it's time to give up. But I'd say that maybe it's not time to give up. It's time to realign. Let's figure out where did we get off track? Yeah. So I'm very curious then, as you say that, like, has that ever happened for you? Have you had that moment of realignment? 100%. I think that what's exciting about Weird Enough Productions is that I started this organization when I was 19 years old. What's stressful about Weird Enough Productions is that I started it when I was 19 years old and I'm 26 today. So just like the organization has grown a bunch I've grown a bunch too. And one of the things that's required for you to grow is that there needs to be a gap where you have growing that needs to be done. I think that for me, as a young person in the social impact space, as a young person in the entertainment space, places where I've lost track of my vision and lost track of my why are when I focus more on my youth than I do the work that I'm doing. Because I think that there is a pressure as a young person to try and scale these giant mountains while you're still young. Like I'm 26 and I remember 
on my 23rd birthday thinking to myself, man, I feel like I'm getting old. And it's not because I was actually getting old, but it's because so much of the dialogue and the rhetoric around young people as they aim to accomplish things isn't the work that they're doing. It's the fact that they're young when they're doing it. So there was a point in time in my early 20s when I was less focused on, hey, what are you trying to build and what are you trying to make? And I was more focused on what is the largest thing that I can build in the shortest period of time so I can exclaim that I was young while I did it and that I can keep this persona as this unicorn, as this mythical, wow, how did he manage to accomplish so much so young so you can get on all these lists and and be in these articles. And I think that's really toxic. I think that so often we we preach this message that what we do happens instantly and that if it doesn't happen instantly it's because you weren't skilled enough or because you didn't know enough or because you weren't trying hard enough or you weren't working yourself into oblivion trying to make this thing work and as a result that reflects poorly on you but i think that all things take time and in my growth i've not only been able to see that time is necessary but that time is beneficial because there are things that I'm doing today that there's no way I would have been able to tackle at 19 years old. And if I had, it quite frankly probably would have tore me asunder if I had attempted it. So with time comes growth. And that's it's important to take that time. You can't rush it. I agree. I mean, I, I like the Malcolm Gladwell's thinking around the kind of 10,000 hours, not that the 10,000 hours in absolute terms kind of matter. But I'm also 100% convinced that it's absolutely impossible to try and congest that 10,000 hours into the next 10,000 hours. I agree with you. I think there needs to be that kind of space, right? And for me, in listening to you, I almost phrase kept popping to mind is, you know, when the student is ready, the master appears. And if we think about the universe and just the way all organisms in the universe kind of grows and evolves with time, that makes sense, right? It makes sense that even though we might have the desire to do something today, we might not necessarily have the means, whatever that mm-hmm. means, right? But I have the means to actually do that today. And, and sometimes the answer is not to keep pushing and artificially create the means we think we need to make progress on this thing, but it is just to be here, stay in this you know, moment, stay in this process until the time is right to make progress on this specific thing. I agree 100%. And I think that that's why your why has to come from within. Because the only way that you're going to be able to exercise that level of patience and to give what you're creating the time that it needs to be the best thing that it can be, if you find that satisfaction with yourself from the beginning, if you know from the beginning that what this is about is something that I want to bring into the world that I recognize has the potential to be to be bigger than me. But before it does that, it, it must first come from me. And as a result, I have to do the work of making sure that I'm being my best self and that I'm moving at a pace that's appropriate for myself so that when this enters the world, it'll be ready. An example that I give, which, which I suppose is timely, is Hamilton, right? So Hamilton... Over 100 million people watch Hamilton on Disney Plus the day that it became available. And this is after it became one of the highest grossing Broadway shows uh, in Broadway history. But prior to that, it took Lin-Manuel Miranda six years to write Hamilton. And as a writer, that feels like a long time even for me. Like my friends, my accountability buddies, if I had a project that I was working on, 
and I still wasn't done with it after six years, they probably sit me down and go, hey, um, are you actually working on this? Or are you just talking about it? Right. And then when you see the finished product, you go, wow, I can completely see why that took six years for you to stage and work through and prune and cut and refine. Uh, and now that it's in the world, it's grown into something much larger. But he gave it that time. And I think that's important. Yeah. And you know, often when you hear something and it just like knocks you straight between your eyes and hearing you say that, I didn't know it took six years to write Hamilton, right? And the thought that popped to mind for me was it took me six years, a little less than six years to found and sell my previous company. The thought that popped to mind there is, is firstly, I felt very, I wouldn't say inadequate, but it felt like my story there was part of kind of the, you know, what probably needs to change here. Because, and this is probably question, well, and I'll flip this question then, is, is this this kind of almost entrepreneur porn, hustle porn, right? Is, is I think what kind of people refer to it these days, the cool kids. But when it is literally possible to build and sell a business for a life-changing amount of money, like I did within six years versus writing a screenplay and having it ultimately produced also takes six years. Like, because those two things are similar, but they're also very different, right? And But we hear lots of the kind of one of those stories and some of those stories we never hear. I think that there is, I think that technology has enabled this commodified story of the creator, whether that's someone is creating a piece of entertainment content or someone who's building a business, we've created this narrative where you toil and toil away at something, you stay awake at night wondering if it's even worth it, wondering if things are gonna work out. You come to the cusp of things not working out and then the miracle comes through and you're able to execute, things fall into place, you're able to build this amazing thing. And then people swoop in at the end of that entire journey and want you to omit 80% of it just to talk about how amazing you are and how you built this thing with no hardships and on pure genius alone and how you intuitively knew where the market was going to move because you're just savvy like that. And as a creator, you look at that and you go, man, why can't I replicate that? It's a sort of thing where you look at these unrealistic stories and if you can't measure up to it, it suddenly makes you feel like there's something wrong with you. So like I said, we do a bit of work with schools and some of the work that we do is around self-image. And for young women, especially young women of color, especially young black women, there are a lot of negative media images that completely misrepresent the way that women look. And for young girls in particular, it's capable of having a profoundly negative effect on their self-esteem at early ages because there are unrealistic expectations for for how we expect young women to look and behave and uphold themselves that are completely divorced from reality, which of course is like due to patriarchy, white supremacy, all that stuff, we know that. But I bring that up to say that I think that a similar thing happens when we idolize and kind of create gods in a sense out of these founders and make it appear as though they built these giant institutions from scratch uh, on nothing but a will and a prayer, when in actuality, it's 
no, my parents gave me $300,000 or, oh, I had these investors that were really interested in me as a person and therefore continued to invest in my ideas even when they weren't really profitable. Like um, I play video games a lot and I'm not a PC gamer, but a lot of my friends are like, Tony, you need to get on PC, come play League with us. And I watched a documentary on Riot Games, people that made League of Legends. And apparently Riot didn't make money for the first 10 years that it existed. League of Legends is by far top five, if not the most popular PC game, especially by MOBA standards. It has completely shifted the way that we look at esports and the way that esports is booming as an industry right now. I would, in a lot of ways, attribute to the growth and presence of League of Legends. And the team at League did a bunch of really cool things that required ingenuity, but nobody talks about the fact that they didn't make money for 10 years. For 10 years, seriously, and you have people that are giving up on their businesses at the end of year one, thinking that, man, why didn't I get that $200 million acquisition offer at the end of year one when Riot Games didn't make money until 10 years in? You look at organizations like Uber, where they raise a lot of money and they make a lot of money. But when, when you look at the, the profit margins, things aren't actually looking too good. And I, I don't think that people go behind the scenes and, and look at those numbers. They, they instead look at this, wow, look at Uber. They just bought Postmates. Wow, look at Riot Games. Wow, look at, look at all these giant organizations that spend more money on catering for their team than my company's entire yearly operating budget. Why can't I do that? Why can't I be like that? And we, we kind of ignore the journey. Yeah. Totally. And I, I think you mentioned Uber, like the one, one that came to mind for me was WeWork and just kind of the amount of absolute bullshit that was included in WeWork's, you know, S1 as they were you know, fighting to go public. And I think the segue that I want to take there, Tony, is then are we not just idolizing the wrong people? Because, you know, I think you know, using your example, you know, Uber, you know, Travis Kalanick does not sound like, I don't know Travis at all, right? Does not sound like he is should not be a role model of my kids, right? Similar Adam Newman with WeWork, like, you know, should probably not be a role model. But yet both of them are idolized for what they've achieved as as entrepreneurs and founders. I do think that we idolize the wrong people. And I think that at a certain point in time, it becomes less about the person and more about what the person represents. So in the Uncommons, we have a character named Influencer. And influencer is like he has superpowers, but he is literally a social media influencer. He has millions of followers. And what we say about influencer is that he has millions of fans, but he's not a fan of himself. And the Uncommons as a story kicks off when our main character, Iris, has this vision where she predicts the end of the world. And the first thing that she does is she goes to find influencer because her thought process is if you have millions of people that follow you and adore you and admire you and the world is in danger, I need you to tell them that the world's in danger because they'll listen to you and stand up to do something about it and help try to figure out what exactly is going on. They need to hear it from you. And an influencer says, I don't save people. I help people save themselves. I say vague, general, motivational things and people take it and apply it to their lives in a way that they wouldn't have courage to do unless they heard it from some outside source. And I think that when we look at these entrepreneurs that people worship, 
It's very similar. I don't think it's about the person. Most influencers in general, to me, when I look at influencers, which is weird to say because by some standards, I would be considered an influencer. I don't think that influencers matter. I don't think that who they are as individuals is the thing that people gravitate towards. I think that influencers build a brand where they find the insecurities that people have. They create this persona that preys on those insecurities and in some way either exploits those insecurities for conversions or finds a way to do this faux woke uplifting of people, but still preys on those insecurities nonetheless. I'm still selling you something. I'm just selling you confidence that I know you don't have. And it becomes less about the influencer and more about what the person sees in the influencer. Like, for example, if you think about musicians, when you hear people talk about musicians, it's very rarely about the music itself or about the people. It's about, man, I was at this point in my life when that album came out and that album really helped me get through blank. It's less about the content. It's more about what the content did for you as a person and what you personally ascribe as value to that thing. Like, I really love Donald Glover. I'm a huge Donald Glover fan. Donald Glover does not know me. Donald Glover passed me in the street. He has no idea who I am. But if you ask me, Tony, why is Donald Glover important to you? I can give you long diatribes about being in high school and not feeling like I was understood and being the weird black kid and going and listening to Donald Glover's comedy special and all his interviews and finding that sense of meaning and self-worth from his words, even though in theory, Donald Glover has no idea who I am. What gives value is the, the experience that I have and how I attribute that experience to this work. And I feel like we treat entrepreneurs and these founder gods the same way. Is what this person is doing particularly that innovative? I don't know, but I heard him give a speech one time and it made me feel like I could do something innovative. So now I see him as an innovator because if he's not, it means that the feeling that I gave myself for what I can accomplish, I can't actually do. So I need to uphold him in, in, in this space where he's larger than life, because if I don't put him up there, then that means I don't have that mental path for myself of how I can get there. So, and I'm going to link this up for, for, for listeners because I'm going to quote your TED talk from, from I believe about 2018, right? So definitely link that up and I recommend to everyone to watch that. But you have a single line there, which says that the goal here is to empower every single person to recognize their power. That's kind of what I'm hearing you say here, right? Which is, and I think it touches on what you said earlier as well, which is for each of us kind of find our why, find where our line is, because if we know where that is, we can essentially take all these things, like regardless of, we don't have to idolize someone, right? Or we can idolize someone, but if we know how and in what way and why it resonates with us, then that's perfectly fine. Then, then it doesn't matter whether they're an influencer or not. Yeah, I agree. I think that in 2020, influencers as social constructs, whatever you want to call it, the concept of an influencer is a person that leverages a platform for personal gain. However, if they were very direct about the way that they leverage that platform for personal gain, then it had come off as really selfish and really egotistical. So instead of making it about themselves, which very clearly it is, because they're the ones that are getting the endorsement deals and, and becoming these brand ambassadors and getting paid 
$10,000 to tag a brand or something like that. Instead of making it about themselves, what they do is they make it about you. They make it about you, the follower. They try to get into your head. They, they use data sets to determine what do these people feel? What do these people want to hear? How do I say what they already believe in a more affirming way? Um, they make it about you. They, they're able to figure out what those insecurities are and find a way to, quote unquote, help you overcome those through them. They make themselves the bridge that you have to cross in order to become your best self. So we end up very, quote unquote, indebted to them, attached to them, focused on them. And I think that that happens in part because we don't see that we're able to cross that bridge by ourselves. There are opportunities that people have to validate themselves, to love themselves, and to grow into who they are without the need for outside stimulus or validation. But that journey is harder. It's harder work to do that. It's easier to wait until somebody with a blue check next to their name says something that validates you or retweets you or follows you back or likes your comment than it is to go and do the actual work. And I don't want to be one of those people that tries to make everything overly psychological. There are people that I follow on Instagram that would be considered as influencers. I like the content. I like the art. Like there are people that are funny. There are people that put out cool stuff and I don't want to detract from that. Right. I'm not trying to make it seem like Internet bad, social media erosion of cultural norms. But I do think there is a science to all of this stuff. And there are some people that are preying on our insecurities to create this this feedback loop that gets them the followers that they want. And I, I don't think that we'd be subject to that if we did the work of learning how to love ourselves and uplift ourselves. Yes, I hold to agree. I mean, I think that's. And again, that goes back to what we discussed earlier in terms of just this individual growth, um, right? And I think that discovering more parts of ourselves is part of also moving through this life. I, I think that's unavoidable. It's almost like if we don't do that, then we're literally going against our human nature. So I wholeheartedly agree there. I'm wondering, Tony, right? So listening to you and, you know, can you, you know we, we've used influencer probably as a label, right, to define the way certain people act, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, like, when you describe yourself, right, do you ever use any labels, right? And if you do, like, what are those labels? It's interesting you ask this question because it's something that I'm trying to navigate right now. Uh, so my team and I are thinking very thoroughly about how do we create the impact that we want in the world? So we look and we say, okay, well, what what allows us to create the impact that we want? So we look at the characters and of the uncommons, there are some characters that audience members tend to gravitate towards more than others. So we say, okay, content with this character in particular performs really well. I'm very happy about that because she's my favorite of the five. So I'm like, that's fine. More of her, please, please. I'm okay with that. Um, but what we also notice is, Tony, when you talk, we tend to win. When you go somewhere publicly and you speak passionately about what you believe, whether that subject matter is related to education, related to creation, related to storytelling, related to social entrepreneurship, when you go and you talk, you put yourself out there, 
we tend to win. It brings resources to us. It brings allies to us. People that didn't know about our work gravitate towards our work. Generally, it tends to work out pretty well for us. And for me, I struggle with that because I'm like, man, I just want it to work. <laughs> I want like I'll I'll sit in my room in front of this whiteboard and write and and work with the with the illustration team on cool page layouts. But I didn't want to have to go and become a brand myself just to create something that I feel like the world needs. But for a lot of entrepreneurs, what they're finding is that that is necessary. And my personal view on it is that I'm like, at the end of the day, I want to help kids. When I was in my early teens, I couldn't find anybody that I thought was like me. I couldn't find many black people at all in the representative mainstream media, let alone black people that were unabashedly embracing the fact that they were weird and different. And it was so difficult for me in, in a time when I was dealing with so much negativity and with so much racism and struggling for that sense of self-worth that I literally attempted to end my own life. And the data that we have right now shows that young people in the United States, especially black youth, are in the middle of a mental health crisis. The suicide rates are the highest that they've been in the last 20 years. So for me, what I want is I need to find the kids that don't see value in their life right now and let them know that they are amazing and enough just the way that they are. And if I have to commodify myself in order to do that, then I'm willing to do it. It's going to grate on me a little bit. It makes me step outside of my comfort zone. But as far as I'm concerned, whatever it takes to help those kids see themselves as heroes, I'll do it. I don't mind. So that means I have to put a label on myself, even if I don't want to. Um, and in that sense, I would say that w words that I use for myself, I I'm a storyteller. Like I'm a storyteller. It's what I do. I tell stories. When we have conversations like this, I tell stories. I weave anecdotes into whatever I'm talking about. Uh, when I sit down to write the comic, I'm telling a story. We want the comic to be an animated series. And when that happens, it's, it's a story, right? I, ha I have a book coming out in, tw in 2022. It's a story. When I get on social media and I talk about things that are happening in the world through kind of this nerdy lens, I'm telling a story. I think that's what I am. I'm a storyteller. And what I like about storytelling is that there are so many ways in which stories can be told, and I don't think people give it credit for that. So I can tell a story on the page. I can tell a story with my voice. But if you go and sit down with a team and work on a press kit or a branding document for your organization, you're telling a story. Every time your organization sends out a newsletter, you're telling a story. When I walk into a pitch meeting or like to work with a school and say, hey, I have this program that I think can really positively impact your students. I'm telling a story and that's kind of like my North star. Yeah. I think the first thing there is, I, I agree. I think even if you have a product yet that you sell to other businesses, like the sales pitch, the marketing, all of that is a story, right? You know, and it's not just external communication, internally, how you rally a team, all of those things are just stories as well. I wanted to kind of just push you slightly here and you can yes, feel free please. to respond. So first I want to have the kind of just the empathy. I think having been a founder twice now, first business, I was younger and I was happier to be the face of the business. The second business, I did so more reluctantly. I didn't care that much for the limelight. And maybe for me, a part of it was also like I became a little bit more private after my wife and I had our kind of your know, first first son. And I felt it was important to be slightly more, more, more kind of private. So, but I also acknowledged that when AD, the founder, replies to a customer support email, 
just that title still carries more weight than John the support agent. And I think that there is a tension in those things that, yes, sometimes to progress the mission um, and purpose and goals, like we simply have to do those things as the leaders of those things. So I, I wanted to just kind of you know emphasize with, with that at least. But what I wanted to push you on was, I think part of what I learned about you and just kind of why you do the work you do and why the uncommons actually exist was to give young kids, young kids like yourself, superheroes that looked like them, right? And I, the thing, and this is a kind of virtual high five from, you know, across the Atlantic here, but I think, Tony, you, you putting yourself out there, right? You telling your stories hopefully inspires a whole new kind of wave of storytellers that look at you and see, hey, I can do this too. Here's a storyteller that looks like me, speaks like me, acts like me, is weird enough just like I am. And it sounds like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, sounds like this is baked into kind of this is almost full circle, right? This is baked into exactly the DNA of Tony Weaver Jr., but also in just what you're doing with Weird Enough Productions at this stage. I think what I like about that, right, is the fact that it sounds like you've found a way to, in a very kind of um, meta or inception-like manner, you are in your work also living your work by creating a kind of a new role model or just some person that others can look at and see, hey, here's someone that resonates with me, that represents me, and I can learn from this person. I don't have to be like them, but I can learn from this person. And I'm wondering kind of whether you regard that as alignment as well, whether you think, was that baked into the mission? So I think that it's certainly alignment. And I think that it is a testament to my personal journey as a social entrepreneur. So when we talk about entrepreneurship, I think very often when we, we think of entrepreneurs as there's a market, there's a gap in the market, I identify this market opportunity, I develop a product identify with my target audiences, get the MVP out there, ship it, iterate, iterate, iterate. And the, the base idea is that as an entrepreneur, I see a market opportunity and I create something to capitalize on that market opportunity in order to build wealth and build an organization. Uh, whereas for me, I don't think it was ever about that. As a social entrepreneur, and that's not to say that I don't think about money because I think you have to if you're, if you're trying to be a sustainable organization. But for me as a social entrepreneur, my thought process, when I talk about social entrepreneurship, what I say is that for a social entrepreneur, you recognize something about the world that is irreconcilable with what you feel the world should be. And it is so irreconcilable that you as an individual say, this cannot stand, I'll do it myself. And as far as my entrepreneurship journey, like I, I started weird enough in 2014, directly in the aftermath of Ferguson, when looking at the way that Black people were being treated, when looking at how media overall had not risen uh, to the level that it needed to in terms of diverse storytelling, I thought to myself, I have to do something. I have to do something. I need to do something. And as a storyteller, my thought was the only thing that I have to offer is my stories. The only thing that I have to offer is these experiences. The only thing that I have to offer are these new perspectives, because I feel like these perspectives have the capability to change the way that a person sees me. 
to change the way that a person may treat somebody whose race is different than theirs. I think I think that stories are capable of doing that because stories are what allowed me to see myself in a new light when I didn't think that who I was as a person had value. So it all started with the story. And then the entrepreneurship piece came in because I said, well, if you want to tell stories, what does that mean? Are we making films? Because if you want to make films, those are expensive. At the time, I was in school, so I could go rent $20,000 worth of camera equipment for free and bring it back on Monday like nothing happened. So films were – I was able to make films when I was in school. But when we got our first major grant right before graduation, like I'm running this company. I want to make this company a reality. I walk across the stage on my college graduation and know that I have an investment of $80,000 waiting for me on the other side. $80,000 is a lot. When you're a startup tech company that's literally two people, $80,000 is not a lot when you want to make films. That's what some people spend on costumes and makeup over the course of the whole production. $80,000 is not a lot. So one must go, oh, what can I make with the resources that I have? It's like, well, we, we, we can make comics. That'd be really cool. I think that'd be fun. Cool. Well, how are you going to distribute it? Which makes me go look at the market and, and what's happening in the comic marketplace. And I honestly looked at it and said, I don't feel like I can cut it there. That feels like it's going to be really stressful. And I don't think print publishing is going to give me a financial return that it's worth the headache that it's going to give me. Where are there opportunities for growth and innovation? Where can I get more investment? Where can I catalyze more people around my work? Oh, tech. And suddenly, as I go on each step with this core guiding light of, I want to use my stories to make the world better, ultimately everything builds around it. And that's where the alignment comes from. Yeah. You described it in a very powerful way there, Tony. And what I really hear you saying there is, you know, by doing that, like everything you're doing is also significantly more authentic, right? And not like I would only kind of propose that you know, on the other side of authentic, we have artificial this year, which is kind of all around, you're going to create the widget first, and then you're going to artificially drive them on for the widget, even though the world really didn't need that widget. So I really, that authenticity comes comes through quite strongly there. I want to end the conversation with one kind of your final question that, that I think is kind of, well, firstly, I think in your ballpark, perhaps not as not because you're, as far as I know, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, a, a parent just yet, but because not. you work with so many kids, I'm wondering for all the parents listening here, what is the one thing that kind of I can do today? And perhaps just, you know, just for me, this was all, this whole conversation was just to get this personal expertise and advice from you. How do I teach my boys? You know, what's the one thing I can do to help them discover they're weird enough? My fun thing that I say is that I I always preface everything with, I'm not a parent, but I do think that there are certain things around personal development that can help people with that. And when I work with kids and we're trying to get them to recognize their inner weirdo and love their inner weirdo and and, and find that, that weirdness in themselves, what we try to champion is the idea that who you are is a uniquely individual experience. It's possible for us to learn from others and we should learn from others, but the way that we build ourselves up should not be through comparisons to other people. Because I think that the place where you start to feel like a weirdo is when you give yourself a mindset of comparison. So for example, I really love the color pink. I love the color pink. You give me like a nice rose gold 
nice shiny metallic pink. I rock it. I love it. And I remember I bought a pink shirt and I wore it to school and someone made fun of me for wearing a pink shirt because boys don't wear pink. Now, the comparison piece comes in when I go, Tony wants to wear a piece of clothing. What do other people like Tony wear? Let me make sure that what I want is directly in line with whatever group I'm supposed to identify with. So if I'm a boy and I want to wear something, let me make sure that what I'm wearing is what other boys wear because I don't want to feel weird. I don't, I don't want to be different, right? It's instead of doing the work of as an individual saying, well, what do I want to wear today? It's not about anybody else or how anybody else feels about it. What, what do I want to wear? How do I want to look today? What aesthetic is speaking to me today? It's not about other people. I think that for young people, especially when they're in the middle school range where their social networks are really, really, really important to their development in general, they have a tendency to compare, 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 compare. What shoes is everybody else wearing? What is everybody else watching? Who is everybody else listening to? What does everybody else think? I need to make sure that I'm in line with all of those things so I don't come off as too weird. So I'm not too different. But I think teaching kids to recognize that from, from a very early age to listen to that voice of, hey, what do I want? Regardless of what other people want, what do I want? And I think the difficult thing for parents, I think my parents struggle with this too, is sometimes that as a kid, what you want is not what you're allowed to do. And, and like in a, in a very loving way, learning how to establish boundaries of like, I know you want to wear your Robin costume to school. I know you want to wear your Spider-Man pajama pants to school. I know you really like that Captain Underpants shirt that I got you and that you wear it every day if you could. Um, but you can't. And here's why. Figuring out a way to break that down in a way that isn't, no, you need to do this because everybody else is doing this and you're being immature when you need to grow up and put that stuff down. There's a healthy way to do it. Yeah, as a parent myself, I think that's that's the hard bit. Obviously, you know, finding the balance. But I agree. With you. I think you know, just that that notion of comparison and the our capacity to be comfortable in our own weirdness is you know probably something that even if I look around at the adults around me, that many of us can still learn. Tony, if anyone wanted to kind of you know, keep following your journey and especially with your book coming out and you know you said 2022, right? Where should they? be following you online? What's the best place? So I am at Tony Weaver Jr. on all platforms. So Twitter, Instagram, I think I'm, I have the same level of activity on both, slightly different content on each. I say more professional stuff on Twitter and I play around a lot more on Instagram. So that's where you can find me. The Uncommons is in print. It's available for purchase. If you go to shop.weirdenough.com, you can see the book. I think it's a really amazing story um, and, and hope that other people like it. And before I end this, I do want to say thank you to you in part for having me. But I was very excited when I saw your name because when I was fresh out of school and it was just me and my CTO trying to build something and make it work, we built our MVP on WooCommerce. So when I saw your name, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Totally, let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's good to know that your WooCourse legacy still still gets me to kind of open a few doors and, and have amazing conversations like this. I'll totally get all of those kind of links 
in the show notes for everyone else. And I said, the one I will add there is the link to your TED Talk, which I think is a, is a must watch as well. Tony, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for me for today's episode. If anything in today's conversation really resonated with you, please do send me an email on ad at lifeprofitability.com. That's ad at lifeprofitability.com. You can also leave a review on iTunes, which helps me to improve the show and perhaps also helps me to reach someone else that needs to hear this or might find this helpful. I'll be back here with another great guest next week. Cheers. Cheers.